Hello, my name is Tom Langson, and welcome to this episode of the Telltales Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with John Hackmeyer, also known as Hack, who is the owner of Cyber Crocodile. I met Hack at an event for the Open LMS and eLearning magazine, where we had a discussion about the future of eLearning. I asked Hack to join me on the Telltales podcast, as it was really interesting to hear the similar challenges and processes he faces when working on corporate projects. I started by asking Hack a little bit about himself and the history of Cyber Crocodile. Uh, yeah, so I actually started Cyber Crocodile uh, back in 2007 with the goal of becoming a, a CISSP instructor, actually. So CISSP, which is a very well-known information security certification, hence the reason I go by Hack with a name like Hackmeyer and working in InfoSec for so many years, it just seemed to work out. So the original intent was to become an instructor for CISSP prep, which I did. And then just because of my systems engineering past, I had people coming to me asking me if I uh, was interested in creating courseware and doing some instructional design work uh, and content creation. So that's kind of how I got started in that area just doing little projects here and there. And then I continued to get more and more educated in the area. And eventually I took a break from full-time work at Cyber Crocodile, went back into corporate America and found sales enablement. I did not realize that I had been doing sales enablement because I don't think there really was a term when I started doing it, but eventually found that I had been doing it and uh, somebody recruited me into the field, if you will, and I loved it and said, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. And so I worked full-time corporate leading some sales enablement teams over the course of, of, I don't know, about a five-year span, and then decided to go back into Cyber Crocodile full-time, utilizing these new sales enablement skills in concert with the instructional design, the content development, having a a security background and also a systems engineering background all kind of morphed together. And so now uh, Cyber Crocodile is focused on working with typically technology companies who are relatively young and just about to hit that hyper growth stage. And they have some funding, et cetera, but they don't have a full-time enablement person and they need a, an essentially a Swiss army knife of a person who can help them build and implement a sales enablement program typically around focused on new hire training for sales reps and sales engineers. So, so yeah, that, I guess that was my next question of, of sales enablement from obviously not working in that background and having no experience of it by the sound of it, it's, it's actually just basically giving people the building blocks to know how to approach the sales approaches for said company. Is that about right? I mean, obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but is that roughly the? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the idea. And it's basically, it's anything that has to do with corporate education. So I just happen to focus as an example in the sales roles. So I'm typically creating programs and training for sales reps of all different types, right? There are sales development reps who are dialing for dollars on the phone. And then you also have, uh, typically in non-COVID situations, you have field reps who are yep. going out and meeting one-on-one -on -one with prospects. 
and of course, sales engineers who are critical to the process. And this is not just for internal folks, but also many of these companies utilize reseller partners. So I'll create training and programs for their sales rep resellers, uh, as well as the sales engineers that work for those resellers. So moving kind of on from that, then where you're sort of where you're situated, how do you, from your experience, now approach learning design? What what is it that you have from that engineering background and sort of sales experience you have? How do you now kind of approach learning design? Great question. So I I learned a lot about what to do um, as I was a systems engineer, and even I, you know, fell into the traps of a lot of people. So it's funny if you talk to enough people in sales and uh, excuse me in sales enablement. What you'll find is that many of them are former sales engineers, and the reason they are in sales enablement is just because at some point in time, somebody said, hey, can you create some training for me, which is a very common request of engineers. The challenge is that engineers are typically not trained in <laughs> instructional design, so the result you know, is a bunch of text-heavy slides with no imagery uh, and just not ideally suited for the adult learner, but you know everybody has to cut their teeth somewhere. So I was kind of a victim of the same you know thought processes when I first started creating learning. And then uh, as I started to do more research and learn more about instructional design, I started to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a better way to do this. Um, I can create training that is more interesting, more effective, more efficient, et cetera. And so now when I look at, you know, when I talk to clients, I'm typically talking to, even though I'm talking to the heads of sales, like I mentioned, I'm also talking to heads of sales engineering and they'll say, oh yeah, we've already got some stuff or this is what we're doing. And it's exactly what I used to create 20 years ago. So I totally understand where they're coming from. And I typically end up having conversations with them trying to, you know, elucidate the, the different ways of creating training that will be more engaging and more effective. And they appreciate that and you know we do a good job with it, but there's also a balance. And the balance is that I can't do everything that I would want to do as an instructional designer to optimize their learning. And the reason I can't is because they're still being held to certain business metrics. And a lot of those, uh, time is important because time is money. So I have to try to find a balance between my instructional design side and my business side to make sure they're getting the results they need. Uh, and I'm not going too crazy on the instructional design side and trying to optimize everything for perfection because there's just simply not time to do that. So that's one of my biggest challenges probably. I, quite interesting there. Um... From where obviously I work at the university and our kind of my clients uh, would essentially be the academics coming for support and stuff. Obviously, they have a learning and teaching background in a different way anyway. So they they have the content and the knowledge to to uh, often know how to design something. It's it's sometimes a technical skill that gets them stuck some just getting it across the line. We use Moodle as our virtual learning environment or CMS or however you kind of want to define that. My, my next question kind of goes back to 
both bits there, which is how strict are your clients with the freedoms you have when you're developing? Because obviously, lots of the times our academics are very kind of open to you doing what you want, because they, like I said, the, the difference is they have maybe time critical, but they're not necessarily financially critical in the same way that you are. Do you have to work within restrictions imposed by them for like creating stuff within different environments or is it you just give them a complete kind of like learning object that they work to um and how much freedom are you given in that creation process and, and uh, like you say you've you you're kind of hit a bit with the financial side of it because it's a business client yeah most of the time they're pretty receptive to be honest with regard to creativity etc it's very similar because um, my previous career as an exercise physiologist and uh, ended up about a year into my doctoral studies dropping out to go into information security. But one of the things that I, I remember from my life as a, as a researcher and then moving into business is that it's like in a university, at least my experience in a university, just because somebody's an expert, a la a professor, doesn't mean they know how to teach. And those are, you know, very different skills um, and not everybody has them. And it's the same thing in the business world. I found plenty of subject matter experts who are brilliant at what they do and they understand everything about their field, but they don't know how to impart knowledge very well. And typically those people, they're aware of that. Um, and, you know, you don't want to call anybody's baby ugly, but I'll look at some of the stuff they've produced and I'll say, well, we can, we can make this even better. And they are very receptive uh, to different ideas and uh, creativity, which isn't always their strong suit. It might be on a technical basis in what they do, but not when it comes to educating people. So I really find that I get a lot of leeway in terms of what I can do creatively uh, as long as it doesn't start to affect that time parameter. And most of the place, I do get some of that freedom and I utilize that in the actual materials and we'll call it like slide design and things like this. Um, I get it there, but I especially get it when we are trying to validate knowledge. So when it comes to setting up quizzing or testing, and I have a bunch of different ways of saying, hey, instead of just asking this question based on you gave them some information, here's a simple multiple single answer question, Let's think about some other ways that we can validate this knowledge that are more creative, more interesting, and more fun even for the learner. And I get a lot of leeway there. That leads me very nicely onto my next question. Like, how do you deal with that kind of assessment and progression for learners? Because like I say, working within Moodle, we have certain tools that allow us to test, be that the quiz for like traditional stuff, where we've also got decision-making options with with tools that do that. So with with what, I guess, what tool are you working with when you're designing stuff? But then how do you deal with that assessment to to get that result for the students? Yeah, tools-wise, especially for this, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Articulate. So I use Articulate 360 uh, to implement everything. And then really when it comes down to the assessment, I really have to kind of look at the material and find out what the overall learning objective is, of course, uh, that they're trying to get across. And what I find is that a lot of times, especially on the engineering side, there are lots of opportunities to use what I think are relatively simple 
things, but a lot of times clients don't think about it where maybe it's a, a question about where do, you know, where does the engineer start troubleshooting if they see certain challenges? And I can just use a simple network diagram, you know, or a diagram of their solution and put a little hidden hotspot somewhere and say, all right, where do you start looking? And then of course they have to click on the right area and they get feedback on that. But something like that, most of my clients would never have thought of doing. They would have simply said, oh, you know, here's choice A through A through D and it's choice C. Yeah. And that would have been it, you know, whatever the case is. So the visual piece is important. And then it gets a little bit harder as you try to, you know, if you think about the standard way of looking at, you know, Kirkpatrick's model for evaluations. And as you start to go higher and higher and want to validate that they're using it on the job, et cetera, those are a little more challenging. And sometimes we'll have to do kind of like post assessments where we're saying, all right, now you've, you know, you've learned about this material and how to do this thing three or four months ago. Now we come back with maybe just a survey to find out how has that been working for you? And that's one way of doing it. Um, we also, I'll design some things that are scenario based because this happens a lot where people are learning how to use certain selling skills and how to use listening skills. And we can put something in where, all right, you're talking with a prospect, he or she says the following, here are three choices of directions you can go, almost like a choose your own adventure and give them a way of, even if it's just one level down, that's fine. It's something that says, okay, you know, I see that all three of these are possible things that a sales rep would say, but which is the best thing to say and why? So things like that are typically areas where clients don't think about testing in that way. And some clients even think of things that aren't necessarily bad, but they're challenging. So I had somebody recently say, oh yeah, I just want to go ahead and put in a, you know, a text box here and let them, you know, reply to the question and then get it graded. I'm like, well, what does get it graded mean? That means that somebody's going to have to look at this, or maybe I can put in some keywords, but you don't even know if they're using those keywords, are they using them in the proper context? Just because they have the keywords doesn't mean it's necessarily right. And the client realized that it would have caused a lot of <laughs> headache for her to be able to go in and have to grade this uh, for the number of reps that she had to support. So some of the ideas aren't necessarily bad ideas. Sometimes they're challenging. Sometimes on the engineering side, they want proof that somebody can click and do something. And uh, there are plenty of technologies where they have, uh, you know, labs in the cloud that they can go do that with. And that's what they're purpose built for. And sometimes those are better things than trying to do it through maybe even a demo that you recorded inside of, let's say, Camtasia or Articulate or whatever the tool is, and then have them try to mimic that. So again, it's, it's, it's individual and we have to talk about it, but uh, these are all areas that clients need help with. Something you, you said a second ago, I think, I'd like to see where you stand with it. With your scenario-based kind of learning flows, um, obviously they can go one of two ways and I'd like to know wh which way you prefer, or which way you prefer and then which way you actually do. Um, <laughs> When you're when you're designing that, because it can branch, do you give scenarios that allow that full kind of 
growth so that they can make lots of different choices and then end up at a resolution at the end? Or do you do it that they answer a question, if they get it kind of wrong or it's not what the company are kind of prescribing should be the approach, it almost loops back and says, oh, no, you got that wrong. Do it again until you get it right. So you're in a much linear thing. There isn't the decisions that could play out because of it. Because obviously one is a much quicker way to work than the other, and especially where you're working to budgets. Mm-hmm. branching ones I think are really good for giving people a, a very reflective experience but actually take an awful lot of time and planning um so do you have to do kind of both or do you tend to err on one or yeah that's exactly right I'm honestly doing both it just really kind of depends but I will say where where it's less linear and you have more of the branching I typically stop after about two to three levels so we don't go too far with it. You could, right? There are infinite ways of, of doing that, but I do try to control it and just give them, um, give themselves or give the, give the learners enough leeway if they're going to make a mistake to really make it. And, um, you know, you don't want to cut them off too early because pain, pain is a wonderful teacher, right? In many different aspects. And so if you give them enough, uh, area to go wrong and let them go wrong so that they are actually committed to it, they're going to learn a lot from that. And typically you have to go a couple of layers, two to three layers deep before they realize, oh, I just boxed myself in here <laughs> or made, made my life a little bit harder. So the answer is both. Um, I do prefer really hooking them <laughs> good if, if we can, but sometimes the linear approach, like you said, it's a time thing. It's like, Nope, wrong choice. Here's my next time. Do this, please. And that's yeah. It. Um, with that in mind, then, and kind of expanding again, how often do you get to create feedback loops for the, the students doing this? Rather than, because my, I've got another question here of like, are MCQs a blessing or a curse to learning design? And I think they kind of almost go together because, as you say, a lot of people just go, oh, here are some questions, answer them, and then you know something sometimes that can be guesswork how much can you build in that kind of feedback loop and reflection for for your learners where maybe that isn't a traditional thing in in the business sense yeah the answer is unfortunately not a lot (laughs) Uh, to be quite frank Uh, every once in a while I, i get the ability to do that but it's it is rare i think usually what ends up happening for me anyway is that rather than necessarily getting in that feedback loop, um, what ends up happening is we end up, I end up talking with sales leaders and looking at some of the high level metrics that they are really most concerned with. And we use that kind of as either, you know, secondary or tertiary (laughs) or at a minimum tangential proof that the training's working. So one of the big things in these organizations is how do we decrease ramp time, right? We want people to come on board and their time to productivity, if it's maybe starting off at four months, how do we get that down to three months or maybe even two months, whatever it happens to be. So a lot of the feedback that I get is around those metrics because they are critically you know, important to the business. So does it necessarily mean, you know, is it a, you know, I don't know that correlation equals causation, can't say that, but I do know that the clients are happy when they see those numbers coming down, which is important for me. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that all of it, it's not the perfect world and it probably never will be, 
but uh, quite frankly, as long as the clients are happy and we're achieving their, their mission, I'm happy with that. With the, the clients that you work with, obviously, like you say, there seems to be quite a lot of sales driven. Do you ever work with like other educational establishments? Are there times where you have to do stuff for, for, for teachers and learners, or are you, you really focus on that sort of sales side of? Yeah, I'm definitely focused on the sales side. Uh, I haven't had, I'm trying to think back. I haven't worked with any educational institutions. The only thing I did have a project, I think it was about a little more than a year ago, probably with a, um, a county, a local government, county government. And it was, I was creating some training for them for their, it was around voting time. So it was training that was used to train volunteer poll workers. And that was a little bit different because that one, it wasn't driven by, I mean, time was important only because we had to get it done, but it wasn't the time and money linkage there. It was around how unbelievably simple can you make this stuff, right? Because a lot of the people who are volunteering um, are maybe older people who aren't as technology focused and aware and comfortable. So that took a little more in terms of the creativity side. I had more leeway uh, in terms of how we were gonna get the information across. So the goals were a little bit different, but again, it wasn't educators, it was the government. It was the government coming to me saying, hey, we want something that is creative, yet wildly simple. And uh, all of that was reflected in, in the learning. And then when I look at it, it kind of makes me laugh. But we definitely met the goals and people reigned and they got it and they did really well on the assessments. And from what I heard from the client later, they did really well at their jobs. So mission accomplished. That's then uh, actually really interesting that from, from your experience of it, where you're getting feedback of like actually it worked really well despite like you say it was almost comically simple with what you actually designed how much reflection do you get personally on on previous experience and clients when approaching new clients it's kind of like do you obviously you've got your own personal uh things that you know to do or not do how much do clients listen to you obviously they're hiring you as an expert so hopefully they would but that's not always the case how, how much can you sort of say, well, this worked here or didn't work here? And how much of that can you actually bring into new projects? Quite a lot. Yeah, I've been very lucky that way. I think that, you know, it, it helps that I'm an old man. And so people are like, oh, he's been doing it a long time. Must be doing something right. I think I've got that benefit where I didn't probably have that, you know, 18 years ago or something. Uh, so, yeah, they, they are pretty receptive. And if nothing else, they appreciate when I come to them with different examples of things. And I oftentimes will come to them, of course, with what works and say, here are the things I've done, different situations, these things have worked. But I've also come to them with things that probably wouldn't have worked and where my client said, no, we don't wanna do that because. And I think that's an area a lot of times where consultants especially don't wanna go because they're a little fearful. Like, I don't wanna point out you know, mistakes. And it's not a mistake. It's a learning opportunity. And a lot of times what I've found is that people will say, oh, wow, 
yeah, obviously you didn't do that. You didn't make that choice. And that's why you didn't do it. And we should avoid that here. Sometimes I've made what I think are good choices and my clients say are good choices. But when I present that to somebody else in their scenario, it would be disastrous because I don't know the you know ins and outs necessarily of their business. And they'll say, wow, well, that worked for them. That would never work here because, <clears throat> excuse me. So I think that it's important to both relay those successful things as well as either th things that were unsuccessful or maybe that you didn't implement a good thing you didn't. Uh, but people are pretty darn receptive to that. They like to know that there are different ways of doing things and I just give them the ability to choose. And that's the thing, a lot of people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So if you take the time to educate them on both the good and the bad, and, and uh, they will usually make pretty solid decisions for their own business. With the advent of COVID and everything becoming a much more online experience for a, a while at least, have you found you've had more people come to you from further afield in the US or, or globally even, or were you already kind of actually working kind of at distance as it was? Um, and do you think your business has ramped, second part of that is, is, is your business ramped up because more people are now going, oh, we need something online where they may have done it in the classroom or a, an office space? <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of both. So I would say that I was, I, I've been doing the online stuff forever and a day. It's just kind of part of what I've been doing. That part wasn't necessarily new. What was new was the volume of, of clients who all of a sudden had to do it and the speed at which the, the sense of urgency now, that was a big difference last year. It was like, okay, we need this. I had a client just yesterday, as a matter of fact, say, well, all right, let's talk about timelines. They're like, can you get it done by last month? I'm like, well, it might be difficult, but I can give it a shot, right? So it's the sense of urgency has been huge. Uh, I've only been involved in a couple projects where people were saying, hey, we've got this, you know, you know, ILT course that we need converted now to virtual ILT. And, but, but a lot of companies, a lot of the, I guess maybe in my industry, that's really already been done and people have been doing it. I think the biggest thing for me was, yes, there were more clients, uh, but they weren't clients who had never done it previously. They were just clients who now had a sense of urgency. We've got to get this done. So Everything got expedited. Um, Absolutely. Do you ever get approached for, for things where from that people want the latest, shiny and new thing? Um, essentially, do you you've got what you do and like you say you use articulate which articulate 360 which offers a whole range of different things um and and approaches i, I know a few of our developers here use that outside of moodle and make packages to go inside moodle for it outside of that kind of packaged bit are, are people coming to you wanting cutting edge technology like augmented reality or virtual reality or is that kind of not something that people are really yet considering even though we, like you say, we're now more expedited into a digital environment. Yeah, I haven't had a single request for things like that. And I think the reason behind that is because of the time and money argument. Yeah, It really comes down to they've done a little bit of research. Maybe they heard about something or they saw something that was pretty cool. And then they investigate it and they find out, oh, that is pretty cool. But it took six months to produce and, you know, 
some amount of money that they're not willing to invest. And by that, by the time that thing would get out, the information probably would have already not been useful anymore because the speed at which the technology moves, especially because I work with, like I said, I work with a lot of startups. And so the shelf life of the materials of the assets that we create is wickedly short. <laughs> so if you were to try to do something in that, you know, augmented reality or virtual reality, things like that, I think they just realize the amount of money and the time is just not something they're interested in. Uh, it's fair enough. It's, it's something that we've been grappling with recently because it's, you want to be at the forefront of these things as, as, as an educational establishment, but exactly the same. It's like you can buy a set of headsets today that are then outdated tomorrow and you're left with millions of pounds worth of kit that you can't really use anymore. And if you haven't got the developers to make stuff for it, even if it is old, it's just going to sit in a cupboard gathering dust. So I fully appreciate that one. But it's, it's interesting to have that argument from, I guess, the educational side to the, the corporate side, where I, I think maybe sometimes it appears that the grass is green on the other side. There's all, there's all this money floating around in industry where people can afford things, and actually they're tightening up on it as well. So, um, Yeah, and, rela and related to that, I remember uh, pre-COVID, going to various conferences and I would like like most people I like to go out to the expo and see the various you know vendors and what they have to offer and I'll sit around sometimes and just listen to conversations that these prospects are having with the vendors and especially vendors who are creating things like virtual reality and all that and it's interesting if you sit there long enough you'll hear some interesting conversations and people will start to say like yeah it seems really cool but and, and, you know, or we can't do that because. And so a lot of times I'll use those expos as an opportunity to do my own research and act as a fly on the wall. And here, because people that are talking to the vendors, those are my potential customers. So I kind of want to hear what they're talking about. And I'll take that information. And then when I'm talking to new prospects, I'll bring up those conversations and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or have you looked into this? And Sure enough, it it's, ends up being pretty accurate with what I observe. The next bit I'd like to just touch on for you, talking again about Articulate in, in knowing roughly how it works. I've used it a few times, and I think my learning curve on it was steep. And it's I I, I found that I'd made something, and then when you want to edit it, or you know if you don't create it with a slide master, for instance, to change one little button takes forever. Firstly, how, how have you found learning it over the years, but also how important to you is standardization of things? What, what do you find with, do you like have a, a template that you can basically pull out for a particular project and then fill it with the new client stuff or do they want it from scratch so it's nothing like that you sold someone else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this conversation. So it's funny because I am all about efficiency and I, I really despise inefficiency. So I am a huge believer in, you know, whether you want to say, uh, you know, measure twice, cut once, it doesn't really matter. But I like the idea of creating templates. And I do that a lot of times. And just, I keep it really simple. As a matter of fact, I think some of the stuff I do is, is so simple that it's almost laughable. And I, I, as a matter of fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with a colleague that I work with on occasion. And I 
And I've seen the work he's produced and he produces just amazing work. And I laughed and I told him, I said, I'm almost embarrassed to show you what I've produced. Um, and the thing is, is that we have very different client bases. And so he has, uh, yes, he does have business clients, but these are high-end um, automobile dealers and uh, brands. And so they, they want all the bells and whistles. They want this stuff to really pop, whereas uh, I'm on admission. So it's really kind of funny that uh, his clients will spend what I consider to be obscene, obscene amounts of money to get these things to look and feel. And the amount of customization, like what you described, is, I think, a little bit insane. I fall more in the area of, yes, I do want templates. And I actually use the things I've built for other clients when I'm talking to prospects. I'm saying, look, here's client A, B, and C. And they will notice many of those things, they look very similar. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that looks pretty cool. I kind of dig that. Let's do that. And we'll, of course, we have to customize it for their look and feel. But overall, they like the idea and they like the simplicity of it. I've seen a lot of people go overboard on the creativity, especially around if you think about the player itself and the amount of customization, if you're familiar with that and articulate the player. And I don't know, the classic player probably has, I'm making up this number, but let's call it you know, 75 different elements that one could customize. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, um, you know, I usually follow the saying of, you know, kiss, right? Keep, keep it simple, stupid. And most of my clients are, that's exactly what they want. They want it simple because they don't want their learners trying to take time to learn how to navigate the player. They just want them focused on the material. Whereas other people like bells and whistles and all these other options and stuff like that. So Yes, I think that creating a template or using things very similar to what I've used before, that's been very successful for me. But then again, it's a case of I know my audience. If I tried to go to my colleagues' audience with that, I'd get laughed out of the room. That's not what they're looking for. Yes, that's part of what your job is as well, though, isn't it? Is knowing exactly what your clients are expecting from you so that you can deliver on, on what their, their requirements are. Um, I think we're kind of mostly there for what I kind of wanted to go through today, but you've kind of covered your sort of challenges that you do face. Is there anything on a real day-to-day -day thing that just grinds you down as well with, with kind of learning design? Because I think for me, with like things like Articulate, I've always liked what it can offer, but equally sometimes get frustrated with with that kind of simplicity of it so is there is there something that you you do to keep yourself sane when you are developing or, or these resources or is it the fact that different clients are giving you something slightly different that, that keeps it changeable for you yeah it's funny i'm not sure you're going to be a big fan of this answer but it really comes back to um, like most people, if you look at any software package that you use, most people use about 10, maybe as much as 20% of the functionality of any given software package. And I find that really to be true for me with Articulate. Um, I'm good at using Articulate, but I'm not anywhere near 
the level of, for instance, the colleague that I spoke with yesterday. And I don't need to be. And I, while I do realize and I appreciate the functionality and I know there are many things that I could be doing, I just think that it adds a certain amount of complexity and of course time and money and all those things that my clients just aren't interested in. So for me, I think the way I keep myself sane is to just keep it simple. And uh, a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I remember, especially in my, my sales engineering days, when I was putting things together just as a simple PowerPoint presentation, I knew maybe, you know, again, using about 20% of the functionality of PowerPoint, but I made sure that I at least knew how to do three things that the average PowerPoint user didn't know how to do. And the result of that was that I then created presentations that people are like, whoa, that's really cool. I hadn't thought of that. And I find the same thing in instructional design. It's just a matter of my clients who are not trained in instructional design, as long as I have a few things that are past where they would have even considered, that's enough to keep them interested, have them see the value, but it doesn't require me to pull my hair out and trying to make some you know, grand piece of functionality from the tool, even though the tool's capable of doing it. Do I really feel like going in and writing script? Uh, no, that's not what I wanna do. And do I need all these advanced triggers and stuff like that? Probably not. There's probably an easier way to design it. And if I don't think there is an easier way, then it's probably just because I don't know the tool well enough. There probably is, I just need to think more about it. But again, I really, it comes down to just how simple can I keep this thing and how, it's just the same thing, I guess, in learning when I talk to subject matter experts who are wickedly smart people and know their information inside and out. And I will ask them sometimes, because I do have a technical background, I'll say, okay, well, explain to me what that, what that means, that term or whatever, the technology. And they go to explain it, I'm like, okay, I understand that because I'm a techie person, but if you want the sales rep to understand that, how about we describe it this way? And you know, I don't necessarily like the term dumb it down, but that's essentially what you're doing. And I try to think, how would I explain that to my mother who happens to be you know, 86 years old and is not a technophile by any stretch of the imagination? So that overall process of trying to make things as simple as possible whether it's in the materials that we're teaching or in the way I'm utilizing the tools that create those materials, that served me well and kept, uh, kept me looking young and beautiful, as you can see by your camera. Thank you. Um, I popped up in my head just as you were talking about that with, with keeping it simple. Do you ever have it the inverse way where Google is not your friend and someone's Googled like, what the product can do or has, has found something that is well beyond what you'd be comfortable making does that then just come down to the oh, i can do it for you but it'll cost and it then puts them back in their box essentially because they understand it's it, it's more than you need or that they need to ask someone else or do they do people get adamant and i want it this way for that reason and you're again trying to fight your way around the problem I know you said most people are fairly receptive. Have you ever had that kind of? I, I haven't, but I think it's because of the people that I choose to hang out with, right? I, know. I think that <clears throat> I'm usually working with people uh, that have very little time, 
they're being pulled in a thousand different directions. And the last thing they want to do is have to give me, you know, detailed, you know, either instructions or requirements. They just want it done and they want it done quickly. So, uh, but I do have uh, friends of mine in the business who work with different types of clients than I do. And they go through what you just described on a daily basis. And I don't know how they do it, quite frankly. It's just not a world that I want to live in. So, uh, yeah, I, I just choose my friends differently. I mean, I guess that's almost another skill in itself, though, isn't it? Is being able to be niche to what you can do and being able to be picky to the clients that you serve. Because obviously, mm -hmm. for, for us within the sort of uh, higher education, we have to help the academics no matter who they are. So we, I think, occasionally are fighting the battles internally because we almost don't have a choice of our clients. You can't refuse to help someone on the day that it's coming in, and, and you obviously are able to be maybe a little more choosy. Is, with that then, to, to, to wrap up, you, when you are approached, is there something that you personally bet from the, the people and are you found through like word of mouth, like LinkedIn nowadays, or are you actively out there trying to sort of, like I said, trade show saying, hi, this is what I do. Do you need my help? Yeah, it's interesting. It's actually very much like from what I remember when I was uh, single, it's very much like dating. And I'm, I'm making sure to ask questions that give me a little bit of insight into um, not just the company but the person that i'm going to be working with whoever kind of my project manager is and i'll ask a bunch of questions to see you know what are the answers what are the, how do they think what has their experience been like in the past um what's their personality like and i will go through i remember when i first started this business one of the uh, a friend of mine said who had been in this a while as a consultant said one of the greatest things about being on your own is that you can, you can fire customers, you can fire your clients. And of course, when I was a systems engineer working for a company, I couldn't pick and choose my prospects. Um, I just had to, like you said, you had to service whoever was there. And while I've only in, wow, 14 years now, I've only had to fire one client, which is great. Uh, just knowing you have the ability to do that kind of takes a little bit of the pressure off. But as I'm going through and evaluating uh, prospects as they're coming in, not everybody's a good fit. And it really does depend. It depends on where the company is, what they perceive their mission to be, whether or not it aligns with what I think it should be is fairly irrelevant. <laughs> um, they perceive it a certain way. And sometimes it's a not a right fit. I've turned down opportunities before because the individual, not even the business, the business fit was good but the individual fit was not. And that person either had unrealistic expectations or maybe just a way of dealing with challenges. And I will ask questions like that. It's almost like a behavioral interview. So yeah, tell me what you've experienced before. How did you handle this? And they don't necessarily know they're being interviewed, but they are. <laughs> and so, yeah, I have to evaluate that. But I, you know, like I said, it's it's been pretty good for me. It's hard for me to complain. I've been very lucky with the people that I've chosen to work with and with one major exception and maybe a couple minor ones throughout the years. Uh, it's been a really good experience. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I'll let you get, get on with your day. But is there any sort of last bit that you'd like to 
to wrap up on from from your experiences as a learning designer and and how you um take things going forward now uh not anything particular i've enjoyed it thank you very much for having me on this has been it's been a lot of fun and uh i i think you know as i was kind of talking to, <clears throat> talking today and listening to my responses uh, i think i got another kind of a a renewed appreciation for where I've been and what I've been able to do over the last, you know, couple decades. And uh, this was part of the reason that I came back out of corporate America is that this is fun for me. And I enjoy having fun. And I wasn't in, you know, my last couple of roles was not having fun. And I realized that. And uh, this is all part of it. The business has been fun and taking opportunities to uh, speak with people like yourself about these topics of which I have a great passion is a lot of fun as well. So I just really enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity. So please do check out telltales.port.ac.uk and follow us on Twitter at tellportsmouth. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. The music for this episode is called Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod and all copyright information can be found within our show notes.